Welcome to Grading the Nutmeg, the podcast of Connecticut history, brought to you by the State Historian and Connecticut Explored, the magazine of Connecticut history. I'm Walt Woodward. In this special summer episode, we visit Frank and Lisa Catalano, who in their 18th century home garden in Lebanon are using some very inventive approaches to bring back an old Connecticut tradition, self-sufficient food production. The new old Connecticut Yankee, coming up now on Grading the Nutmeg. The independent, tough-minded, do-it-yourself-and-grow-it-yourself, semi-subsistence Yankee farmer. It's one of the oldest icons of New England culture and one of the two bedrock beliefs that form the foundation of the time-honored image of the Connecticut Yankee. That admiration for the farm family striving to be nearly self-sufficient to, as Wyndham Mill Museum director Jamie Eaves has written, produce most of what they consume and consume most of what they produce, rest side by side, although a bit uncomfortably, with another legendary image foundational to our view of the Connecticut Yankee, that of the restless and inventive Yankee whittling boy. This iconic character, as business historian Carolyn Cooper has noted, was that genius Yankee boy who, before he sent to school, in the words of an 1857 poem, well knows the mystery of that magic tool, the pocket knife. A tireless carver, this creative lad uses his knife to make everything from a chestnut whistle to a cornstalk fiddle, to a water wheel that turns upon a pin. And over time, the knowledge he gained from a pastime of whittling whittles him into an early industrial genius who, by his genius and jackknife drive, ere long he'll solve you any problem given, make you a locomotive or a clock, cut a canal or build a floating dock, and, whether it be a pistol or a spring, wheel, pulley, tube, or brass, the thing designed shall surely come to pass, for when his hand's upon it you may know that there's go in it, and he'll make it go. Early Connecticut inventors such as Eli Whitney and Samuel Colt, who whittled the model of his famous Colt repeating revolver while serving as a crew member on a merchant vessel, helped create the legendary image of the Yankee whittling boy. And that symbol of invention over time somehow became alchemically melded with the older icon of self-sufficiency, the subsistence Yankee farmer, to form yet a third legendary figure, the Connecticut Yankee, the tough-minded figure who was simultaneously independent, self-sufficient, inventive, and entrepreneurial. These 19th-century Connecticut Yankees collectively helped create the modern world and in the process helped make Connecticut both an industrial colossus and one of the wealthiest states in the Union. But in the process, they also changed the world into a place where farm self-sufficiency morphed into agribusiness and whittling boy invention morphed into corporate R&D. The self-sufficient farmer and the Yankee whittling boy, legendary though they are, are also creations of a now distant past. At least that's what most people believe, and I used to believe it too. 
until recently when I ran into Frank and Lisa Catalano, a couple who have turned their Lebanon home hobby farm into a place of both self-sufficiency and fabulous invention. They've provided a modern twist on a time-honored story, one we'll explore in this episode of Grading the Nutmeg, one I'm calling The New Connecticut Yankee. And I guess I should preface this with a spoiler alert, or at least uh, a piece of forewarning. What starts out as a new take on an old history pretty quickly turns into a vegetable gardener's geek out. So if you are, if you got a garden in your backyard, you're going to love this. And uh, the rest of you may find it interesting too. So Frank and Lisa, thank you so much for uh, allowing me to come visit your beautiful, beautiful farm. For people who aren't here with me right now, and be jealous if you aren't, tell us about the farm. Where are we? What's it like? Well, we think we live in paradise. And we found this property about 13 years ago. It's a 200-year-old farmhouse that used to be on farmland. And the property has seven acres, of which one acre we have turned into a vegetable-producing farm. And Frank and I are completely plant-based, and our goal is to self-sustain right here on our property. And the fenced-in area where our garden is is completely secured from the deer and the wildlife that love to visit us from time to time. I thought they lived over by my house, but <laughs> <laughs> they, live they live here too. So we fenced in an acre of our property. This has been a three-year process of what we've transformed this beautiful old farmhouse to be. And we have a lot of plans to reconstruct it in even better ways. I'd like to add that it's, I would say, more of a hobby farm. We don't sell anything here. Everything is for our own consumption. And our goal at some point in time is to actually self-sustain 100%. Uh, we have plans that will hopefully enable us to do a year-round garden. Uh, as we walk through, I'll show you some of the, uh, I call them innovations, but you know they're kind of simple. But we are incorporating, I would say, techniques that make gardening very easy so we can do it for the rest of our lives with an aesthetic twist. My background is landscaping and I have a huge passion for creating beautiful surroundings and spaces. So what we're doing here is blending the combination of aesthetics and functionality to create a self-sustaining, just like Lisa said, paradise. So it's beautiful, simple, and self-sustaining all at the same time. And organized and easy. Did you realize when you started putting this together that you were going back to this old, old tradition of subsistence farming? Well, it's basically in our roots. Both Lisa and I are descendants of immigrants from Italy. My dad was a gardener and farmer his entire life. Same with my mother and, and Lisa's grandparents. I had like a calling for this. My hands need to be in soil. You know, I've started out in landscaping and lawn care and I just have a passion for it, but I like coming up with ideas and solutions to problems. So, you know, it's a unique combination. It's actually, you know, been the uh, thrust for all of the businesses that we've had over the years together, Lisa and I, and 
me previous to Lisa. I've never worked for anyone my entire life. And it's all been plant related with different ideas, not just, you know, a landscape business. They had a crazy design service and an invention to fix a lawn called the grass ditcher that repairs lawns and quite a few, some of them a little more bizarre than others. Um, <laughs> but uh, it's uh, through a passion of creating solutions for growing things. One of the things that just fascinated me about you when I met you is this combination of inventor and self-sufficient farmer that you're striving for. And it, to me, it's so impressive. You talk about your parents and grandparents from Italy and they bringing this tradition of growing food with them. And of course, I immediately thought of the old Connecticut Yankee farmer, but this is really an older way of living, a traditional approach to life that goes back, you know, not just to early New England, but to Europe and for thousands of years. And there's something to be said with having your hands in the soil. You know, there's all this talk about grounding these days, walking around barefoot uh, to get the negative ions from the soil. So, you know, it, it charges your soil, uh, your soul, and it does all this stuff. Well, you also get that when you have your hands in the soil. Uh, so there's, you know, a certain amount of calmness, of correctness. I don't know what you want to call it, but um, it feels right uh, when we grow things. We just love growing things. You know, most, we lost, I don't say we lost a lot of our friends, but, you know, most of the time, you know, come the weekend, we just want to garden as yeah. opposed to what we used to do. Uh, and it's just become almost an obsession. And, you know, when you love where you live in your surroundings, it, it is hard to leave this property. We um, work out of our home and we spend all of our waking moments in our garden and we still can't get enough. And when you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. Well, you know, I'm sitting here under your grape arbor and I can see where you could just sit here for hours every day and just enjoy this feast for the eyes that is surrounding me. But uh, I look over my shoulder and the vegetable gardener in me says, I want to see what's going on in there. <laughs> so how about taking me for a walkthrough and telling me Love about it. this really unique uh, self-sufficient or approaching self-sufficient farm that you are developing. What I'd also like to add is after a day of working in the garden, uh, when we come back here to this patio, Lisa goes inside and makes incredible vegan meals uh, that we get to enjoy at the end of the day. So you're somewhat exhausted from working through the day and you get to eat this super nutritious food that just makes you feel great. Now, you both are vegan, right? Yes. We, we call it plant-based. Yeah. Um, you know, there is a difference. But essentially, we eat all plants uh, and, and nothing, you know. No dairy, no. No dairy, no eggs, no uh, nothing animal, basically. It's turned us into animal lovers. <laughs> yeah. You know, not that we weren't before, but extreme animal lovers, you know, to the point where you know, I can't see uh, an animal being slaughtered like on TV or killed or hunted or anything like that. And I've never been like, like I said, we're Italian. We used to eat sausage and prosciutto and everything else. But at this point, it's, it's really changed how we think, how we feel. So how did you come to this? You, you, I have to tell you, I know it's not true, 
but you are the first Italian couple <laughs> I have ever met that confessed to going plant-based. Well, so, we tell everybody that we meet that we used to be Italian, but now we're vegan. <laughs> so that's our <laughs> Have you told the family yet? <laughs> They've accept, they still accept us. Yeah, that's wonderful. <laughs> they shunned us a little bit at first. And actually, it's a crazy story. You know, they did shun us a little bit. Uh, in fact, uh, it started because of health reasons. Uh, I had contracted prostate cancer, and uh, I had my prostate removed and thought it was over, but then it uh, reoccurred, and they suggested that I do radiation and that they could buy me five years with radiation, and I almost fell off my seat when they told me that because I was only 47 at the yeah. time, and I, I was just like not having that, so we began our journey. We started with a detoxification consistent of fasting a lot of fasting. Uh, and, you know, I dropped like 30 pounds. It's not just food, though. It's stress, it's exercise, it's sleep, it's relationships. And um, my cancer hasn't grown at all. You know, it's very minimal. It's still there. So and I how think, long has that been? It's been 11 years now. That's amazing. Yeah, they uh, gave me five years with, with uh, radiation. And you've more than doubled that. You know, at the rate that it's going, I'll be 200 years old before it ever kills me, if and, it ever does. And do you attribute that to the plant-based lifestyle that the, you have? The lifestyle. You know, it's not only that. We do yoga. We do a very intense yoga. It's a uh, hot yoga. It's called Bikram yoga. And just our mindset. We don't stress about things. We live a very peaceful life sleep very well. I'm nearing 60 years old. I'm 59 years old. And I swear I feel better than I did when I was 30. Well, I will I will take pictures of you and I'll post it with this story and no one will believe. <laughs> Except for the gray hair. No, no one will believe that your name isn't Rip Van Winkle. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. It's a lifestyle. It's uh, a goal. And I believe that that's also a thing that most people need to have is, is a purpose to wake up every day. You pop out of bed. You want to do things. And we, we both do that. We have seven acres here. I, I plan to touch every corner of this property. That will be the existence of our life going forward once we retire. We're doing the important things now by planting the, the trees uh, that take time. We have an orchard over here. Uh, we have our berry patch. I'm going to show you. We have lots of berries. Every berry you can imagine, actually. Um, and so, you know, it's... It's a passion. So you adopted a plant-based lifestyle 11 years ago, but you started the self-sufficient farming for five years ago, Three right? Three years ago, 2018. 19, 20, 21. We had yeah. a garden, but it was um, a garden that we had to bend down, and uh, it was the existing garden that came with this house. And we transformed the entire garden because we want to do this into our golden years. And I have a pretty, you know, bad back. And bending down is very taxing when you're gardening. And we made it easy. We made it easy so that growing food is a cinch. And we're, we're setting ourselves up for the long term. So what was the, what was the turning point where you said, okay, we're going to take the garden and I'm not going to bend over anymore, but I'm going to expand this thing so that we can eat every meal from the things that we have grown. Like Lisa said, this house is over 200 years old. Out in the front, we had 200-year-old maple trees. They were huge and beautiful beyond, but they were declining yeah. ever since we got in here. And it was on town property. And they kind of politely asked us if they could take it down. It wasn't like we had a choice. So once we took that down, the house looked naked. <laughs> It, they were just big, beautiful trees. 
actually went out and bought a big maple tree, a six inch maple, six inch diameter maple tree. And it's huge. It's over the top of the house at this point already. So I started thinking, maybe we should get some fruit trees. So we we're like, okay, well, maybe we should get a greenhouse. <laughs> and then it was off to the races. And then I just started scribbling this and that. And we, we got these raised beds that we built with the covers on them. And uh, we'll explain it when we walk through there. So it started with the downing of our maple trees in the front yard. And it just hasn't stopped. Did you start out saying, we are going to become self-sufficient? It started out with the fruit trees. And then it started evolving into this. And then, you know, COVID came along too. But, but even before then, we were just like, boy, how liberating would that be? Because uh, we don't need any animal products. We have the ability to do this. So we're just like, why not? Let's just inch our way that way. And, and beyond that, we all shop at the grocery store, and even the organic vegetables that you buy at the grocery store, they're often very tasteless. And then we would grow a tomato plant or a pepper plant and bite into our own fresh homegrown vegetable, and the taste was out of this world. We started growing more and more and more of our own food, and it just doesn't compare. And not only that, we know... The soil we have made with our own compost, so our vegetables are nutrient-dense, and you could taste it when you take a bite out of anything that we grow here. It tastes so fresh and delicious. And uh, it has the nutritional content that you really need. I don't think you get a lot of that with these produce, with the produce that you get that comes from you know, South America or even California that's picked weeks and weeks ahead of time. You need... Food that's grown in healthy soil. When you say to most people good soil, they think you, you know, dig up the field and turn it over and... We don't turn soil around here. We don't. We do not turn soil. It's against the rules. It's against the rules. We do it like nature does. When the leaves drop in the forest, they decompose and feed the soil. Uh, in terms of gardening, it's called no-till gardening. You basically just put compost on top of compost on top of compost avoiding disturbing the soil and the mycorrhizae, which is um, fungi uh, that grows in the soil, connects everything, and does spectacular things. So you do not want to dig your soil. Oh, I'm loving this. Does, does, does this mean I never have to dig up anything yes, again? Yes, never. It's easier. I'm liking it. Less Let, weeds, too, believe it or not. I, I am so glad I came here for more <laughs> reasons than one. Let's go take a look. So now we are walking through the arbor that transitions from the courtyard into the farm area. And I'm looking at some of the biggest strawberry plants I have ever seen. <laughs> Holy moly, what is this? Well, this is our strawberry patch uh, that actually works in succession. And what I mean by that is our first year strawberry plants um, are not what we want to pick strawberries from. We actually pick the flowers off of them, so they build a root system for the following season. Uh, those two rows, so there's six rows here. The two rows on the end, we ate strawberries off of. What we'll do eventually is we'll rip those out probably next year and replace those with some of the babies coming off of these right here uh, and pick the flowers off of that while we're eating the strawberries off of these. And we have a perpetual um, you know, a crop of strawberries that we eat on an ongoing basis. This is uh, 10 feet by 20 feet. So that's 200 square feet. 
and that's a, that is a year's supply. I mean, that's... Uh, we actually froze a whole lot of uh, the strawberries. We ate them fresh. You can only eat so many of them because we have other stuff going on here. So we eat that and freeze what we, uh, what we don't. We have an enormous variety of fruit and berries, berries particularly. I'm, I'm just obsessed with berries because berries, I believe, are some of the most nutritious plants on this earth. So I set out a goal to plant every single variety of berry that will grow in the zone on this property that I can. So how many do you have so far? Uh, I never counted them, but, um, you know, we've got gooseberries, honeyberries, blackberries, strawberries. What do you call that over there, princess? Those goji, goji berries. Goji berries, marion berries, logan berries. Kiwi berries. Kiwi berries. Um, just, just the berries, currants. Uh, these don't all become ripe at the same no. time. Thank Do, goodness uh, they don't. No, no. <laughs> they come at different times. The amount of fruit on each one is just amazing. It's wonderful. Thank you. So tell me about this tree. That's the gnarliest pear tree I think I've ever seen. Look at those. When we walked through this property, when we were considering buying it, and we entered this area... And this is what we saw, this beautiful pear tree. It has hundreds of pears on it, and the bark is so unique. We've never seen anything like it. And this is where we hang out on hot days after we garden. They've told me that if you're going to grow fruit trees, then you're going to have to use insecticides. You're going to have to use netting. Is that true? Well, we don't, uh, and we don't need perfect fruit. I'm okay with some disease and stuff, but we're actually doing a, uh, a new experiment this year. We're spraying all our fruit trees with whey. Whey? Yeah. The milk whey. byproduct? Yeah, by uh, making cheese. Correct. The bacteria and the whey eat the sugar off the surface of the fruit, and you know, and it competes with the disease that eats the same sugar. And it seems to be working pretty well. This pear tree, I've never seen one like it. And beauty. So beautiful. I have no idea how old it is, but I've never seen a pear tree this thick around and with such character here. I'd like to know how old it is, but, you know, I don't know a good way of doing that other than slicing it in half. And yeah, yeah I mean, you could do tree rings, but. Right, oh, yeah, but I, I don't want to, you know, damage it at all. You know, one of the things I notice looking around me is that you make great use of bags for growing things. You know, a container gardening, but they're in grow bags, right? Yes, we have grow bags throughout our entire garden. And what you're looking at right in front of us are 300-gallon fabric grow bags filled with our own compost. And we have four of these and this is what we use to grow garlic. So in October, uh, we plant all of our garlic in grow bags. Uh, the benefit of doing that, garlic has a very long growing season. You plant it in October and you're going to harvest it in July uh, or early summer in August. This way, uh, other usable space in our garden could be used for succession planting and other vegetables that have a shorter growing season. If you're not familiar with growing your vegetables in grow bags, not only can you plant more per square foot in a grow bag, the vegetables root prune, which creates a healthier vegetable that's more vibrant and more lush. 
What does root prune mean? <laughs> I'm glad you asked, because it's actually the basis of our new product that's based on the grow bag. You'll notice that these are four 300-gallon grow bags, but over here we have 30-gallon grow bags, lots of them. And that's not by mistake. It's uh, because of its functionality. The root pruning happens when the roots come in contact with oxygen, the, the, uh, the edge of the fabric. Mm -hmm. And in normal containers, roots circle, and they become fleshy and big and essentially inefficient. Most container plants, when you pop it out or replant it to repot it, pot up or whatever, you'll see it, it all circles around. Uh, that's not really good for the plant. It's very inefficient. And in fact, it's actually susceptible to overwatering also too. But what happens in a air pruning type situation where the root is in contact with oxygen, it stops growing at the apical section, which is the end of the root. Or the one, the root itself, rootlets, root hairs will grow. So the root system is immensely bigger. So it branches out. It like branches a out on the inside system. with small rootlets. Yeah. So the surface area of the roots are enormously more than you would get if it was circling around. And they're smaller, much more efficient. So you're able to absorb more water, nutrients, and oxygen. Makes for a healthier plant. Makes for a plant that you can grow much bigger also too. So essentially you can go grow more in a fabric grow bag than you can in a regular container. The problem with grow bags are they're ugly. No, they're ugly for the inside for inside of your home. That's true. And they don't water from below. That's true too. So what we've done is created a planter that solves that problem. It's not only aesthetic, but it waters from below, it root prunes, and you cannot kill the plant by overwatering. Overwatering is the number one reason house plants fail. Most people don't yeah. realize that. Yeah. They keep pouring water on a plant that doesn't look good. Because you love it. <laughs> no, because you think you're doing good. Yeah. You think that yeah. you're going to solve the problem. It needs more water. Yeah. And most people don't realize it. No, it needs to dry out. So you're essentially finishing the plant off. Yeah. You cannot kill a plant in a naked root planter. Invention is part of everything you do. We look to solve problems. I wanted a root pruning planter for my greenhouse. There's just nothing out there. And I searched and searched, and I was like, uh-huh. Well, I just hired a CAD drawing guy and said, do this for me. And then it just it kept evolving. This is like a year and a half into this, and we've evolved into this planter that really solves a problem and I believe looks great, and I think it's going to disrupt the planter world. I can't uh, wait to see it. Yeah, I, I think people will be planting these type of planters uh, for years to come. You know, even if I didn't know you were Italian, the 600 pounds of garlic uh, <laughs> container would sort of be a giveaway. <laughs> yeah, I'd say so. We we love garlic. Garlic is so healthy for and you, it, too. If you don't know um, how healthy garlic is, just cutting a clove of garlic, sitting it on your counter for about 10 minutes and consuming it raw has instrumental health benefits for you. Clearly, there's a whole lot of garlic in those two big 300-gallon bags. But one of the things you want to do is be able to save your garlic so you could plant it again next year. Most garlic, I believe you're able to just plant again. You know, you just gotta save it, make sure it's stored correctly so it doesn't rot out for the following year. You just plant the clove right back in the soil. And so. the hard neck varieties store better than the soft neck varieties. There's those two types. So 
If you're looking to use them all winter long, you want to choose hardneck varieties when you're planting your garlic in the fall. Over here is uh, a new addition. This is our blueberry patch. You just can't stick blueberries in the soil and expect it to do well. It needs a very specific soil. So I had to actually dig out a trench with my backhoe, fill it with compost and peat moss and sulfur and pine needles. And so you got to create a, uh, an area that blueberries like. But I've been having problems with rabbits. Think Elmer Fudd. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I've been chasing rabbits for too long. I don't shoot them, so I got to catch them with a half hour. And it's so there are, there are dozens of blueberry plants, and each one is covered with a net bag right now. It looks like a Casper the Friendly Ghost convention. <laughs> I intended to build a structure over here, over these at some point in time. Uh, but, you know, these are, this is brand new right now. So Now, how long will they remain producing? The thing about blueberries, uh, from what I understand, is if you plant different varieties, uh, you get better pollination. So there's all kinds of different varieties inside here. So they're, they continually uh, produce. Some of them haven't even started yet. I've got these pink lemonade ones that... If know, it's pink, we'll grow it. She'll yeah. grow it. <laughs> <laughs> it's good four weeks or so, you know, of blueberries. And we come out here every day and we pick a bunch. We have our gooseberries <laughs> right next to it. And that's our kiwi berry vines over there. They are grape-sized fruits without the fuzz of a kiwi. But they taste like kiwis. And they, if you even cut them open, they look just like the inside of a kiwi. And wow. you can just pop them in your mouth. But they're just so good, you know, in the morning. Yeah, yeah we try to eat everything that's in season. So we'll right. be eating gooseberries for a while. <laughs> and, and, and then the raspberries are coming up over here. We'll be eating raspberries. Wow. So how long does your season extend into? I'm going to explain that once we get over to the raised okay. beds. Because Excellent. that's one of my favorite uh, topics. Have you ever had fresh asparagus? No. They melt in your mouth. Sometimes, when they're about six inches high, right. eight inches high. Yeah, you got to cut it the right height. These have gotten high. Are you letting them go to seed or are no, you? See, it needs to get the, uh, the energy for the following year. And in the fall, it, it kind of turns golden yellow and... You cut it all down, and, and then it just does this cycle every year. And the beauty about the asparagus is it's perennial. It'll perform for you every single year, and you're done. That's I love it. That's why I expanded all this. I just I love the whole fact of perennial-type plants that you don't have to do a whole lot, you know, like the berries and the fruits and stuff like that. They just keep coming and coming. And then you got this section over here where you have to work at it. <laughs> the orchard is a large variety type orchard. We have apricot trees, peach trees, cherry trees, pear trees, Asian pear trees. We have a unique tree called the pawpaw, and it's a native tree of the eastern coast. Right. The most unique fruit you've ever had. I don't, have you ever had one of those? Somebody told me that it's only ripe for a day. It all comes in at once. Yeah. Yes. And it tastes like custard. Yes, yes. it does. Yeah. It's a mix between a mango and a banana, if you Ugh. can picture that. And the reason you don't see them at the grocery store is exactly what you just said. They have a very short shelf life. You'll never find them in our traditional grocery store. And supposedly it was George Washington's favorite breakfast. And another unique fact about the pawpaw, it does not pollinate by bee or your traditional insect. Believe it or not, it pollinates by fly or beetle. Fly. Well, that's the other thing I've heard about pawpaws is that they smell bad enough yes. to attract. Yes, yes. Uh, so, you know, uh, those are the two pawpaws. They're very large trees. But the other thing about this orchard, I'm doing this intensive orchard plan where 
for instance, that mulberry that has a netting over that, mm -hmm. that's an enormous tree. And I just finished yesterday taking branches that were about four feet. I took them all down. So you're going to keep it trimmed off at the top. Just keep them all at six, seven feet tall. Interesting. And that way I could do, like I, you know, have that netting on that mulberry mm -hmm. tree. You mm -hmm. can't do that with a 40-foot tree. They're doing pretty well. Uh, like I said, I've been using that way on it. If you look behind you, these plums are clean. There's nothing on there. The peaches over there. How often do you spray them? I spray, spray them before a rain. So that sticky. almost seems counterintuitive. I know, you would think so, but it's a very sticky substance. So it sticks to the, the leaves, the fruit, and it just consumes those sugars that are on the surface. I don't have a perfect barometer of how effective it is, but they look great so far. They do. You know, and then we got our apple trees. We got all these different apples. I got a five, couple of five-in-one plum trees, a five-in-one oh, uh, cherry tree. I, I intend to try to do some grafting myself as time goes on. My dad used to do a lot of it, so I watched him do it. See, that's the Yankee whittling boy. In yeah. <laughs> I want to try so many things, but there's only so much time in a day. Indeed. We're walking over to our raised bed area. Uh -huh. We have 10 four-foot-high raised beds. We custom-made these in their eight-foot by four-foot and four-feet high. There's no bending down. We have them completely filled with our own compost. We also have uh, cold frames that go on top of these, so that extends our growing season from early spring into the late fall, right right through winter. We overwintered carrots in these cold frames. So in the spring, we harvested an entire uh, bunch of carrots. If you look off over there on those shelves, those are the, uh, the hoops that go on the raised beds. They're actually hinged. So what we do is, uh, in our potting shed, we'll show you in a little bit, we've got our fall crop growing over there that will come to fruition in October, November. But in another couple of weeks, we're going to, you know, Plant some more greens, uh, spinaches especially, oh. uh, things that could actually uh, do well in the colder weather. Now, we want to do some experiments in the, in, the, in the future, but that's one layer of plastic, but you can put another layer of plastic on top of that. And I also intend to try to put heat tape into the soil. I don't know what I'll be able to do or how long I can, but as it sits right now, we could grow greens right down to Christmas. Then, you know, January and February, it's basically stops growing, but they're in there. Well, you have to have time to read the seed catalogs, right? <laughs> and, exactly. plan, and plan the following season. Yeah. But what happens is the stuff that's in there just basically just stops growing. They stay alive. Yeah. And in the spring, as it warms up, uh, they shoot up again and they just keep going. So we have early, we have basically a lot of greens. Actually, some of that stuff we're looking to uh, get the seeds from. She likes this. That's a yeah. very unique um, arugula. It's called wasabi arugula. Oh so my. If you like, Does it really taste it like wasabi? It's very, very hot and spicy. So <laughs> the reason why you see all those flowers is I'm intending to save the seed from that crop that we planted a month or so ago. We haven't done a lot of that. We're just experimenting with it. We know how to do it. It's just a time constraint sure. right now. So this is well, your potting shed. Yes, let me oh, explain is that this gorgeous. to you. You know, if you want year-round food, uh, that you need to succession plant. You know, so you have to be essentially planting your seed every two weeks. And so I thought to myself, boy, that could be a real chore. So, you know, how are we going to actually do this? So we designed this little system here and a potting shed close to our heated greenhouse. Uh, so that way... Everything that we need is right here without having to go hunting. That's wonderful. We have a refrigerator in there that we keep our seed in, in these little packets. Yeah. So they're, they're airtight inside of a consistent inside of temperature. A 
Yep. And all our soils inside here, which I get from the compost bins, and I'll show you in a little bit. Potting shed right there. So you pot it up right here. You bring it right into the greenhouse. If you don't want to do it and it's too hard to do, you're basically not going to do it. This is our naked root planter. It's essentially a planter inside of a planter with a lot of holes. Look at this. And what you do, this is uh, a prototype from a couple of prototypes ago, but water goes inside here, fits a quart and a half of water. Part of the, uh, the patent to it is that we've made it efficient, so we maximize the wicking uh, area in this configuration right here. And when it allows for maximum water in this area and also have maximum ability to draw the water up through the wicking action. And so what happens is the oxygen uh, comes in through the holes, so the roots are in constant contact with oxygen and it root prunes, as you can see right here, it's, it's root pruning. You see the little hairs right there? Sure. They stop. You know, in a normal plant, like I said before, it just keep they going They would around. just keep going. They just stop. They're like little hairs. Uh, so they're staying inside within the soil and branching out. See how they're short little yeah. hairs on the outside? The root mass in, in these type of planters are enormous. So it's a better plant. It's a more healthy plant because of the root system. And it, you can't, I can't kill it with water. It's great. Because the root system is exposed to oxygen. That's really the key. That's fascinating. Yes. By the way, I have to stop and point out the signs. You have a great, the sign, <laughs> each of the, each of the uh, structures I've seen has one sign in it. In the potting soil, there's a sign that says, I'm a dirty girl. <laughs> She's which, a dirty girl. <laughs> which leads me, to, leads me to think that Lisa is the one who does the potting. <laughs> yes, exactly. And in the greenhouse, there's grow, damn it, which leads me to think that Frank is the one who spends exactly. time in the greenhouse. When I walk in there and I don't see something growing, that's exactly what I say. Grow, damn it. Um, and I just wanted to mention when we were talking about the potting shed and the greenhouse being close together, when you get into gardening, when you're uh, growing your own food, you really need to be efficient to make this no chore. So you'll notice as you walk around our property, everything has a place. The potting shed has a purpose. It looks really cute. It's a cute little hangout spot. But we have everything that we need to pot up plants easily. The seed is easily accessible for succession planting. It's 10 steps into the greenhouse. So by... Being organized, it really is an integral part to success. If people could see just what you have growing right now, they'd realize not only is there tremendous variety, but there's a lot of production going on here. You have to be efficient yes. to manage this much food. You don't want it to be a chore. You, right. you want to enjoy it. So take the chore part of it out of it. If you take as much of the chore out of it as possible, it becomes fun. I want to back up a second about this cute little, uh, uh, little area potting shed. It started out as a potting shed. It is now a she shed. <laughs> <laughs> and things have a way of working out that way. And personally, I think it is the cutest potting shed in Connecticut. <laughs> if you could see it, it's called the dollhouse. It has a peaked roof. Oh, my goodness. It's stained a dark charcoal gray with uh, pink windowsills. It's so girl. Every, every woman should have one. So not only is it a functional, integral part of our garden, when it rains, we hang out in here. You'll notice uh, a bottle of wine and a couple of beers in the refrigerator where we store our seeds. It's just a great little place to hang out. I will have a picture, by the way, of the she shed potting shed. <laughs>
up on the podcast, and there will be a lot of envy. So, <laughs> Every woman needs one. If you're a gardener, you need a she shed potting shed. You know that's going to get edited out because my wife is going to listen to this. <laughs> okay, so this is our raised bed, but we also have a raised bed area over here, which consists of our grow bags. Now, we took our grow bags, instead of putting them on the ground, we put them on benches. You have mixed, you've got lettuces and kales, but a lot of varieties mixed together. Was this intentional? All of the leaves are so unique. When you're looking at, you know, a garden that has all these different colors and textures, it just Mm -hmm. makes it incredibly beautiful. We don't use any pesticides here, and uh, it's completely an organic garden. This is the first year that we noticed that the cabbage moth and the worm did not get to our brassicas. This uh, late winter, I started feeding the birds vigorously to attract them uh, to our garden. They always are here, but more so this year than any other year. And our theory is it's the birds that are keeping They're that controlling the moths. The moths, right. Moths yeah. and worms look at, away. Look at the broccoli there. There's not a single hole in there. I that. know. You know, we use BT, yep. uh, biological. But, uh, you know, this year I haven't sprayed a drop of that. That's amazing. So you'll see in all Marigolds. of our vegetable beds, we have marigolds growing. They attract the beneficials and they keep the predatory insects away. They're usually either in the center or on both sides of the bed. Yeah, we believe in companion plantings. You also see over here our tomato plants have the basil and we also have parsley next to it. We also line the outside of these with nasturtium um, and you can eat those. They're, They're edible. And we have one tomato plant per 30-gallon grow bag, but wow. we've planted herbs or nasturtium with them. around it. Mm-hmm. And uh, they should be flowing with flowers nice. within weeks. And you can see that all of our grow bags are covered with untreated bark mulch. And mm-hmm. uh, not only does it look neat and clean, it keeps the weeds down, it keeps the moisture in, and it keeps the soil at a constant temperature. So no matter where you look in our garden, other than our four-foot raised beds, you're going to see everything covered with bark mulch. Over here, you'll notice our fig trees. A friend of mine, an older Italian guy, has a vast collection, and I mean vast, of fig trees. He gave me these. But what we do is we put them in the basement and pull them out in March and put them in a greenhouse. But we grow these in the seven-gallon grow bags. They do very well. You can see all the fruit set on these right here. They had them wow. in there for three years. They're doing pretty well. They just keep root proning. Yeah. You know, they, the root system is so massive that it does dry out kind of quickly. So, you know, you got to stay up on a watering. But uh, some of these varieties, Pellegrino, the fig is about the size of my palm. And juicy that. You could see the flesh is so juicy wow. and delicious. delicious. You know, the one thing I haven't seen... And it's got to be here somewhere, is onions. I don't see onions. Oh, we have onions. Yeah, there you go. Okay. Yes, oh, onions. I see them. They're hiding over there in the corner. <laughs> we have a bunch. we got everything here. And those are also in 30-gallon grow bags. So let's move on this way to our bean tunnel. Oh, look at that. Everyone says, where do you get your protein? Everyone asks that. And it's such a fallacy because just about every food has protein in it, especially leafy greens and everything. But if you really want your protein, eat your beans. That bean tunnel is fabulous. Come on over here, check it out. And you can walk down the middle and harvest. And you can kiss in there. <laughs> it's like Even a, better. It's a love tunnel. Now oh, these are. I orange. don't know beans about that. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, these beans are are only about two or three feet tall right now, but within the next two or three weeks. This is going to consume the entire 
tunnel. So it's a green living tunnel. It's going to have flowers. Every section has a different variety. So all the flowers are different colors like orange. Some are pink. Some are white. They're just absolutely Purple. beautiful when, when they all come to fruition. Won't this be beautiful? And then when you walk through and you see all the beans hanging on the top, and uh, this bean tunnel is made from just cattle fencing bent yeah. uh, into yeah. a tunnel. It's very inexpensive to do. Uh, vertical gardening is just so awesome to grow your vegetables. This is terrific. <laughs> and that's your, the, the thing that looks like a mini a pony horse stall or a pony stall. That's your compost. That's my compost facility, yeah. There's four stalls in that compost facility. Yeah, let's go look. And all of the vegetable scraps go in the first bin. And Frank, you can explain the process. Right, so yeah, that's um, a covered area uh, for our compost. And everyone says, why do you cover it? You know, I guess there's a bunch of rules, or schools of thought anyway, of how to do your compost. But I've decided to put a roof over it. You would think the, the nutrients would leach out of it if they got too much rain. That's exactly right, and that's why I do it. But it requires adding water right. to it. Right. Uh, but I make it part of my process, because what I do is uh, every month I'll pull out all the compost with my tractor. I've made it high enough so I can get my tractor inside mm -hmm. there. Yank it all out, and I'll run the sprinkler on it. And I'll get it soaked, put it back in, and it really kind of activates everything. I and see you've got a thermometer right in the middle. Right. You want to yeah. monitor the temperature. You don't want it to get too hot. You want to get it hot enough so it kills all the weed seeds. Yep. And when you keep doing that year after year, it acts as an actual mulch in itself. Yeah. And that, you know, because it doesn't have weed seeds in there that are viable. Yeah. And, but it has all the nutrients. So, but you don't want it to be too hot and that it destroys the life in the soil. So I monitor it. If it gets too hot, I pull it out and turn it. So are the four bins just for volume? No. So the first four one stages. there is the fresh stuff right yeah. there. Yeah. So, you know, in the fall, I'll collect all my leaves from yeah, the property. Yeah, that's your clippings. And, which I have a mower yeah. that sucks it all up and chops it up, too. Yep. So I put that down as my, uh, my brown, my base. And then we just keep adding to it. And then by the time the leaf season comes again, I'll move that pile over to the next bin, move Got that it. one over there. And this, this second one there is almost done. Yeah. Uh, so I've been turning that. That's just about ready to use. And the way you turn it is by taking it out every month? That's yes. the yes. Yeah. Right. You're taking it out, add the water, uh, and just keep turning it and get, getting the oxygen in there. Not too much, you know, moisture. That's the other reason. You want about a 40, 50% moisture content in there. Yeah. So if it's like raining all the time, it's yeah. not good. Yeah. You know, so it stops the process. It doesn't do as well. If you keep it at the right moisture content, turn it. Normally, it goes real quick, too. And you've done all this since 2018. Correct. Amazing. I'm totally blown away. I really am. <laughs> I've been pretty focused the past few years. But, yeah. you know, we're getting... The structure's almost done. I actually can get down to gardening. You yeah. Know, you know, and, and yeah. the fun stuff, really. Like I said, I'm going to be 60 next April. I figure I'll get all this hard work done now. Good and then idea. when I'm in my 70s or whatever. You can walk around with a microphone in your hand and talk to people <laughs> who work hard. <laughs> I'll get your job. <laughs> there you go. Your job. So this is a 40-foot uh, container, shipping container. That's my tool shed. And then I got my covered area where my tractor lives and my ATV and my mower with the bagger and all that that I explained. This is, yeah, this is the perfect guy-man shed. Yours is cuter. <laughs> yes, it is. It's not insane. I got tools. All right. So one of the problems that we've had uh, in the past, well, last year in particular, when we grew our corn, we got three different sections of corn, and I plant them far apart like that so they don't cross-pollinate. Yeah. And so we put the cattle fencing up there so we could to keep the corn from getting blown over. 
Last year, it just got devastated. And it's it's heart, wow. heart-wrenching to see yeah. all the corn laying on the ground after a windstorm. So that's not happening anymore. This area is where we're growing all our watermelon. And we decided this year that we're going to put the cattle fencing up there because we're going to grow it vertically. We're going to hang the uh, watermelon with... Nylons. I, I said pantyhose. And one of the girls in the garden tour were like, we don't use pantyhose anymore. So I where are you going to get your nylon? In Frank's <laughs> closet. <laughs> yeah, right. I don't know where I'm going to get it. You're going to get it. I don't know where I'm going to get it. Well, you're going to hang them so they're vertical, so they're not all over the ground. Yeah. They get more oxygen, you know, airflow and all that. Don't know how it's going to work out. Someone told me it's more work than it's worth, so we'll see about that. Uh, that's our artichoke area. It was not successful. Artichoke? Yeah. You have to grow those for two years around here. Hmm. There's a fellow up in uh, Maine called, <clears throat> his name is Elliot Coleman, and he's the, the godfather of market gardens and, and organic market gardens. And he grows the most spectacular artichokes. That's his prized thing. Uh, and I have his book. So I planted some over there. And what you have to do is you grow for one year. You have to overwinter it. And you can see all the mulch over there that I planted there. And it didn't work. It, they died off over the winter. So I don't know what I did wrong, but I got to figure it out this year. So I have some growing. And then the following year, you actually get the artichoke. So it's a two-year process. Um, you'll see behind it through the fence. Those uh, are grapevines. Grapevines, and, and I'll tell you about the But those flowers. aren't grape flowers. <laughs> no, no, no. We'll tell you about that because that's actually... Uh, Remember I told you about the other uh, invention? I'll go back over there called the grass ditcher. Yeah. But anyway, let me tell you about the grapevines first. A friend of mine over here owns a winery, um, Heartstone Winery. His name is Walt yeah. also. I don't yeah. know if you know him. Do you know Walt? I do, oh, actually. Nicest guy. Uh, he gave me cuttings off of his one particular variety called Frontenac. Oh, that's great. Yeah. And it's a variety that does not require any spraying. So I'm going to be making my wine. Uh, hopefully... As good as Walt's Frontenac, because his is delicious. Oh, that's um, excellent. It doesn't require any spraying, so, you know, this is its second year. It's got some grapes, but I don't expect much, a, whole, a whole lot this year. It's going to be for next year. And you've made wine before? Yeah. We make it like the old uh, the old generation. Yeah. Uh, we have an old press. An old press that, um, so we make it like our, our grandparents. Oh, that's great. It's called natural wine. Yeah, I, I, I don't ferment. I don't kill the yeast and add yeah. other yeast. I use the natural yeast and I ferment it, you know, with its own sugars, its own natural yeast. So it's called natural wine. It's actually good for you. Uh, that's just my school. It's actually people kind of like. I like it, and most people compliment me. Is on there the a wine. different taste to it than? Yeah, you know, it's not as, um, you know, Walt makes wine that's beautiful. You yeah, know? and it's yeah. he knows. What you know, what yeast to put in there, uh, and, and his, yeah, his wine is better, there's yeah. no doubt about yeah. it. Or you know, it's just different tasting, but you know, it's our, our wine is by no means nasty, yeah, but it's just not as refined. It's a natural wine, yeah. Well, I it, like it, it's homegrown, it's homegrown, yeah. <laughs> Self sufficient wine is a pretty good hey, thing, hey, and hey, you never know if, in fact, we become. A nation of having to self-sustain. Yeah. You've seen what happened in COVID. Yeah. Who knows what the next pandemic could bring for us or whatever supply chain situation yeah. that may require you. At least I'll have my own wine. <laughs> <laughs> and, and a lot of friends. And we're, <laughs> exactly. Say, that's we'll where all be the, happy. the friends. That's our squash area over there. We're trying um, to grow it up also, too. you got to actually tie it up. This thing's a grass stitcher. This is a double. Oh my goodness! It's a double grass stitcher. You could actually take this apart and make a single grass stitcher. And how you operate this thing is you 
put your hand on this thing here, you put your foot on it, and roll it over. There's a pattern on the hole that it makes. It makes this wide hole, and when it comes, when this turns and comes out of the hole, it turns up the soil. So what you do is you leave your dead grass right there. You poke, you poke these very unique holes in there, which is basically a wide hole with yeah. soil around it. Throw your seed down, water it, the soil will fall around it, and that's it, you're done. You just gotta keep it watered, and that dead spot in your yard will turn lush. But it's generally used in dead spots. Like yeah. for instance, you had a nice lawn, and you got grub damage, or yeah. chinch bug damage, and it's just dead grass. Yeah. Well, you know, most people go through and dig it all out, yeah. replace the soil. You don't have to do that with a grass ditch. You just poke the holes right through it, That's and amazing. throw the seed down, and you do it. Why I'm explaining this to you is those flowers that you mentioned over there. Yeah. Was another product that we sold when we saw this. It's called Live Mulch. It's a jug of self-sowing seed with sawdust, lime, and vermiculite. And what we did with that, we poke holes in mulch, just like a mulch bed. That's yeah. what that was over there, a mulch bed. And you take the live mulch and you just spread it over, you know, all those holes that you just made. What happens is seed will fall into those holes around the mulch and sprout in the holes. The plant will come up just like you see it over there, how yeah. dense it is like that. Yeah. No weeds will grow. Poked holes, seed thrown, live mulch. That's amazing. In this rhubarb that you see lining yeah. our garden, we had two original rhubarb plants. Wow. And we divided them up and we created this beautiful border of rhubarb from two plants. We're still harvesting. Oh, I just made great. a you strawberry. You can freeze it too. You can cut them in and make rhubarb. wine out of it. Walt makes a delicious rhubarb. Really? Oh, Unbelievably delicious. You have to go there when he has it because it's very limited. It goes very quick yeah. too. I tried making it last year. It didn't work out so well. Uh, but I'm going to do it again. These are zinnias grown in here. My goodness. Uh, by live mulch. Oh, and there's the calendula on the other side, which are edible, by the way. That is the most beautiful flower. All summer long, it screams summer with the bright orange and yellow colors, and it'll bloom until fall. Have you ever eaten this, Erdem? No. Yeah. Wow. It's got a little bite. That's got like five different flavors in it. It's peppery. Mm -hmm. Delicious, huh? It is. Wow. One thing you should realize also, too, this is a plant called comfrey. Comfrey? I have a bunch of them growing over there. There's a bank behind the barn over there that I intend to make an entire ground cover out of. Why? Because this is the most nutritious plant to make a fertilizer out of. Really? It's called a bioaccumulator. It essentially goes really deep in the soil and pulls minerals out from deep wow. in the soil. So you can make compost teas out of them. You could use it as a mulch. It grows like crazy, and you could just dig up a big clump and divide it. You could create an entire forest of this stuff very quickly wow. and easily. That and um, nettles. Nettles, yeah. Yeah, all that stuff growing over there is nettles. Really? Both of those have lots of nutrients in it to uh, make uh, fermented plant teas. Aren't nettles hard to work with, though? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah Seven-hour itch, yeah. as they call those, too. That yeah. lasts for two or three days, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This area here, these vines are table grapes. They're kind of new, so they're not um, sure yet, but uh, these would be for eating. God, it's going to be. I mean, it already is awesome, but I just, I can't imagine Come this. Back here when, in five years. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I just wanted to let the listeners know that we document everything that we're doing here on our property. Our Instagram name is windowgarden.us. 
However, the name uh, will be changing to Our Garden Gig uh, very shortly. So you can find us under either name. Uh, we have lots of great videos and we take pictures daily of everything that we're doing. We are a garden helper and we teach people how to garden. So if you're interested in knowing what's going on in our backyard, you can follow us on Instagram. You know, just to see pictures of this, I would go follow right now, windowgarden.us or ourgardengig.com. Our Garden Gig. It's going to be turned over to that name very shortly, but right now you can follow us under windowgarden.us. Words cannot describe how amazing this is. You have to just walk around and look around, uh, even via Instagram, and see what a spectacular approach to self-sufficient, self-sustaining food production this is. Magnificent. Thank you. So that's the uh, dog and pony show. I am so impressed. To learn more about Lisa and Frank's new Connecticut Yankee approach to self-sufficient food production, follow them on Instagram at windowgarden.us or Our Garden Gig. And to read more Connecticut history stories with a twist, subscribe to Connecticut Explored at ctexplored.org and subscribe to todayincthistory.com. This episode was produced by me, Walt Woodward, who invites you to join us soon for another episode of Grading the Nutmeg.